want to start off by thanking Don for those kind words and also the invitation to come here and speak at this esteemed congregation. Uh, the reputation of Willow Avenue is well known and it is a privilege for me to be here and I commend you for the work that you do. Um, it is meaningful, it is not in vain. I have known Don since 2005, 2006, I believe. And uh, Don and Sherry are very, very special to me. A few years ago, um, there was, when we were living in Georgia, uh, my house caught on fire. We were, it didn't, it, it, the damage wasn't um, as bad as it could be. But um, uh, we had to end up gutting it and renovating it completely. But um, about two days after uh, the fire, um, I got an email from Don because he, uh, he was in uh, South Haven at the time, and he had asked me to, uh, to be one of the speakers at the power lectureship there. And so we were talking about that and in the email. And so when I replied to him, I just mentioned that what had happened with the fire and uh, I said, you know, did, uh, you and Sherry, please pray for my family. And uh, the theme of that lectureship at Power was the devil. That was the theme. So I get an email back from Don the next day, and it says, you know, if you want to, I could change your topic to the fires of hell. <laughs> and then he wrote below that, too soon? Uh, that's one of the things I love about you, Don, your great sense of humor. Uh, is, I'm really glad to be here. I really appreciate uh, the song leader and the, his selection of the song we just sang, Farther Along, because that really, that really has to do with what I want to talk to you about tonight. I want to talk to you about perspectives. Namely, what I want to talk about is our own perspectives that each one of us have as individuals. A few weeks ago, I was in Murfreesboro at the grocery store, and I happened to run across in the, in the line um, about three guys, and they were very friendly. They started talking to me, and I, I could tell just from their accent that they were from Australia. So I asked, uh, you guys are from Australia, aren't you? And they, they said, well, what gave it away, you know? But they, I said, so what are you all doing up here? And they said, well, we're thinking about uh, moving to the Nashville area. And so we started talking, and they had questions. They said, so, so tell us this, you know, uh, what, are, what, what are gas prices like right now? Uh, and what are, what's, what, what's, the, what's the housing market like? And so I said, well, you know, right now, you know, about $4 a gallon it is beginning to go down to 3 here in Tennessee, around three seventy-five or so. But, you know, uh, there are places in the country that it's, you know, 6 $7. And, uh, you know, a house, uh, two-bedroom, quarter-acre lot, a few years ago you could have gotten that for maybe 90,000, 100,000, 110,000, you know, depending on where in the country you were. Right now, probably it's going to be around 210,000, 250,000. Things are really high right now. And they said, uh, 
Well, let me tell you, let's tell you how it is over in Australia. And so I said, oh, okay, so has, has all of this really impacted Australia? And they said, yes, but really, this has been how it is in Australia for pretty much our entire adult lifetime. And I said, really? And they said, actually, we wish that we could have it like you all have it here. Why do you think we're wanting to move here? And I said, well, what is it like over in Australia? And they said, well, we don't live in, you know, like Sydney, one of those big cities. We live in like a small city that you never heard of, you know. And I mean, it's not like New York. It's more like we're like in a smaller city, kind of like Murfreesboro would be. Kind of like Cookville. Gas prices for years in Australia, according to them, been eight, nine dollars a gallon. And they said, you know that house that you were describing, two bedroom, one bath, quarter acre lot, small lot. What'd you say it would be? And then I said, well, it used to be around ninety thousand, hundred ten thousand, somewhere around there. Now it's probably two two hundred thousand, two hundred thirty thousand, somewhere around there. They said, uh, for the longest time in Australia, a, a small house, small lot like that, quarter of a million dollars on average. And I said, really? And they said, yeah. And again, they grinned at me and they said, why do you think we are wanting to move here? And the first thing I said to them after that, it, it just was the first thing that came to my mind. I said, guys, I really am glad I ran into you today. I really want to thank you for sharing that information with me. I had no idea. And it has really given me something to think about. It has changed my perspective. I want to talk about perspective. I want to talk about our own perspectives that each one of us had. What is your perspective? Ask yourself that. What is my perspective? In fact, a better question would be, when things go wrong in your life, what's my perspective? Not when things are great, when things are bad. How do you respond? Do you say, why me? I do. There's times I've done that. Lord, I... I have been preaching the gospel for decades, and if you compare John Mitchell with Adolf Hitler, or Saddam Hussein, or Osama bin Laden, I'm not that bad of a person. So why did, why did you allow this bad thing to happen in my life? Why me? Why me? Have you ever, when things have gone bad, have you ever contemplated just giving up on Christianity, giving up on God? Why should I follow God wherever He would lead me when this is where He's going to lead me? When He's allowed this to happen in my life? There's been times when that has crossed my mind. There's times when it's crossed my mind when uh, bad things happen in my life. About six years ago, my good brother over there had to talk me into staying in the ministry. I remember that phone conversation. Because I was this close, just saying, I'm done with this. I'm done with it. Don't want to do it anymore. Because, if, if, because 
bad things happened to me, my family. Sleepless nights, burdens, tears shed, betrayals, friendships lost. I don't want to do this anymore. He, had to, he, he was the main person who talked me into staying. I don't think I'm alone when I talk about stuff like this. I think that you and I respond to hardships by saying, why me? Or considering, however briefly, or ever, however not so briefly maybe, that the Christian walk might just not be worth it in the end. Or if we do stay in the Christian walk to lessen our involvement and our commitment, like I, was, like I thought about for a little bit. And you know what? In the end, if these thoughts have crossed your minds in, the, in bad times, you're, it, it's normal. It is. We are not, if, if you are nodding your head, saying, yeah, I've been like that, then we're not the only followers of God who's like that. I think that most of us have a perspective on life that is really short-term. I think we see what's in front of us. In fact, when it comes to what's in front of us, I think we might not see as much of that as we think we do. I know that there are times when I don't see what's in front of me. But we do tend to focus on the here and now. And usually we focus on the negative in the here and now. Philippians chapter 2 verse 14 says to do all things without grumbling. Or other translations, all things without complaining. Do all things without complaining. When was the last time any person in this room, myself included, went for 24 hours obeying that command? When was the last time that happened? I'll be honest, it has never happened with John Mitchell. Never. Every single day, I, I find something to gripe about. I do. Why? My perspective. Focusing on the here and now and usually the negative here and now. Our current problems, what currently distresses us, is the only world that we know. We can't see the future. But you know, I think of the apostles, and I think of the other people of faith that we read about in the Bible. The Bible says that James was killed with Herod's sword, and that another Herod chopped off the head of John the Baptist. Historical tradition says that Paul's head was chopped off, that Peter was crucified, upside down by his own request, it is said, so he would not be exactly like his Lord in death. It is said that the Apostle John was boiled in oil, except that it didn't kill him. It is said that Thomas was impaled with spears in India. Most of these people spent lots and lots of time in prison all of them, with the exception of John, we are told, died horrible deaths. And here's the thing. They died these horrible, agonizing deaths, knowing that all they had to do to avoid it 
was to turn their back on their faith and say that they had been preaching something that wasn't really true. But none of them did that. None of them broke ranks. They all willingly died. Why? Their perspective. Their perspective is because they knew that God had blessed them. They knew that they served a God who became man and gave his life willingly in a very similar way that they were giving their lives. And all they wanted to do was follow his example and walk in his footsteps and receive the eternal reward that he had promised them, which they had their eyes on. That was their perspective. What made them different? What made their perspective different from ours? What, what could make, other, besides inspiration, what could make the Apostle Paul to say something as seemingly impossible as do all things without complaining? This brings me to what Jesus had to say to the church at Smyrna, Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11 which was just read to us. It's the text of our lesson tonight, so I encourage you to keep your Bibles marked there. I want to give you some background on the church of Smyrna. Smyrna was a city in the Roman province of Asia, which is now the country of Turkey. Today, the town of Smyrna is known as Izmir, Turkey. And when Revelation was written, the city of Smyrna was very deeply involved in worshiping pagan gods. There were at least three temples in the city that honored the gods Zeus, Roma, and Sibel. They also built temples to worship the Roman emperor. In fact, Smyrna was known as a center of emperor worship in the Roman Empire, at the time Revelation was written. In fact, a few years before Revelation was written, there was an inscription placed in the temple of Zeus in Smyrna. The inscription honored the Roman emperor Nero, calling him the savior of the whole human race. That's what they said about Nero. The savior of the whole human race. During Jesus' lifetime, Just a few years before he began his public ministry, the citizens of Smyrna built a temple to Tiberius Caesar. And some believe that emperor worship throughout the Roman Empire began right then, at that time, in that place, in Smyrna. It is believed that even the Jews living in Smyrna during this time period also became caught up in worshiping the emperor. And then, about 60 years after Revelation was written, there was a Christian by the name of Polycarp. Polycarp actually knew the Apostle John when he was younger. In fact, Polycarp sat at his feet, at the Apostle John's feet, as a student of his. Polycarp, 60 years after John wrote Revelation, Polycarp was burned at the stake in Smyrna. And the reason he was burned at the stake was because he refused to burn incense to Caesar and declare Caesar as Lord. It is said that the Jews in Smyrna 
who were involved in that emperor worship and who were enemies of Christianity, they encouraged the Roman governor to put him to death. Historical uh, tradition testifies that during Polycarp's trial, the Jews said to the Roman governor, this is the teacher of Asia, the father of the Christians, the overthrower of our gods, who has been teaching many not to sacrifice or to worship the gods. And by the time Polycarp, who was one of the elders at the church at Smyrna, by the time he was an old man, this is what he was facing. A terrible, terrible way to die, being burned alive. But the Roman governor hesitated to put him to death because he was an old man. And so the governor comes up to Polycarp and he says, Polycarp, if you just declare Caesar to be Lord, and if you burn some incense in worship to the emperor, then I promise I will not kill you if you do that. And here's what Polycarp said. Eighty-six years I have served Christ and he has never done me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And then he was burned at the stake. In fact, the, the tradition says that the Jews very passionately gathered wood for the fire that killed him. I find that tragic that God's chosen people under the Old Testament were now gleefully participating in the death of one of God's preachers. I am reminded of how when Jesus was on trial, they had shouted to Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. And now here at Smyrna, a few decades later, they're declaring themselves to be worshipers of Caesar. I bring this out because history shows that it was very likely that during the time that Revelation was written, the Roman government had made emperor worship a test of loyalty to Rome. Any Christian who refused to worship the emperor would be considered disloyal. He would be considered a traitor to Rome, and he would be put to death because of it. That's why Paul, right before he was put to death, he wrote Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's the background of what we're going to be looking at tonight. So let's start our study of the text by looking at verse 8. I want to take a, few, uh, a minute to point out a few things about this passage. A lot of people have questions about the phrase, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, or elsewhere in chapters 2 and 3, the angel of the church at Ephesus, the angel of the church of Philadelphia, etc. Does this passage teach that each local congregation has its own celestial angel? And the answer is no, and here's why. The word angel comes from the Greek word angelos. Angelos literally means messenger. And while it is true that most of the times that you read this word in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, most of the time it's referring to celestial angels who were messengers of God like Gabriel. But there were also times in the New Testament when the same word was used to refer to human beings who were messengers. For example, this same word was used to refer to John the Baptist as the messenger of the Lord. In fact, in the Old Testament, its Hebrew equivalent 
was used to refer to Queen Jezebel's messengers who told Elijah that she wanted to kill him. So this is not a celestial angel. In fact, think about it. There would be no reason for Jesus to tell John to write down a message to give to a celestial angel when you think about it. And so the angel of the church in Smyrna and the angels in the other churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, they don't refer to celestial beings. They're actually referring to the human messengers of each of those churches. In local churches, the one who generally has a message from God to give to Christians at that church is the preacher. He's probably the one that Jesus had in mind here. So if you are writing notes in your Bible, note that angel in this passage means human messenger, likely the church's preacher. But what does it mean when he says, the first and the last who is dead and has come to life. Now that is clearly a reference to Jesus. He uses that same phrase to identify himself in Revelation chapter 1 verse 17. We know that John chapter 1 verse 1 says that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And then in verse 14 John says, and the Word became flesh and, and dwelt among us and we have become uh, we have behold his glory, glory as of the only begotten Son from the Father. So, Scripture de defines Jesus as God, clearly. And God, clearly being eternal, he is the first and the last. Jesus had, in fact, died, but he was resurrected. We will come back to that in a few minutes. But then let's also look at verses 9 and 10 on the screen. I know your tribulation and your poverty. He's writing to this church that's in Smyrna, remember. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not that are a synagogue of Satan, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Just as the Jews had participated in the persecution of Polycarp 60 years earlier, Jesus is acknowledging to these Christians at Smyrna that they are being persecuted by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. In other words, these Jews likely considered themselves to be following God. They probably still thought of themselves as God's chosen people, but in reality, all they were doing was serving Satan because they were persecuting God's chosen people under the New Covenant, Christians. Some of these Christians at Smyrna were about to give a get a taste of what Polycarp was going to go through 60 years later. Verse 10 says that the devil, and what he's meaning there is the followers of the devil, these Jews who thought they were serving God, were, was about to throw some of these Christians at Smyrna into prison, which means that their faith was about to be tested in a very big way. The verse says that they would have tribulation for 10 days. He's not talking about a literal 10 days. Because remember, King James Version of Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, right at the very beginning of the book, says that Revelation is signified. It's signified, which means that it is a book of signs and symbols. Figurative language here. So 10 days, that's not a literal 10 days. Well, what does it mean? Well, back in biblical times... 
They used the number 10 in a figurative way, kind of like we use the number 13. I mean, you think of the number 13. Doesn't that symbolize something? Some elevators, I am told, do not have a 13th floor because what does 13 mean? It's unlucky, right? That's what it, we correlate that number with. Well, back in biblical times, the number 10, they correlated that figuratively with human completeness or human fullness because it was difficult back then to live past the age of 45 or so. Average life was very difficult in ancient times. And, so it was, and there were all kinds of things that happened to people they didn't have, that they didn't have medicine for, that there were accidents. People would, due to disease or due to accidents or due to violence, it was not uncommon for people to be missing fingers or toes or even entire limbs. So if you had all ten fingers, you had all ten toes, well, you were complete from a human standpoint. That's what they considered, that's what they correlated the number ten with. And so since the number ten to them would have symbolized completeness from a human perspective, what Jesus is telling them here where you're going to have tribulation for 10 days, that's a symbolic way of telling them that they were about to experience tribulation, tests and trials of their faith, like being thrown in jail and being killed simply for being Christians, and that these trials and tests were going to be complete. They weren't going to be halfway done. They were going to undergo the full measure of persecution. It was not going to be a, some form of mild punishment for being a Christian. It would be the full gamut of what they were about to experience. Thorough and complete. They were going to be seized by the government, thrown in prison, they would be waiting trial, and in the end, they would be put to death. And I think that it is without a shadow of the doubt that this church in Smyrna was already going through difficult times. Look again at verse 9. Tribulation. The word tribulation literally means to suffer severely, to suffer with great hardship. The idea behind it in the original Greek is someone being, a, being under a crushing, grinding burden that they could barely lift. And then they, he says, I know your poverty. The word poverty in the original language, it was talking about a, a state of poverty that was so bad that they were literally reduced to begging. These Christians were going through very difficult times, but what did Jesus say? I know your tribulation, I know your poverty, but the parenthetical statement, but you are rich. Jesus, what are you saying? We're rich? We're rich? Really? I don't know where my next meal is coming from. I do not know how to feed my children. I just lost my job because I refused to worship the emperor and my former boss is about to turn me into the government and my entire family and I are going to be thrown to the lions. We're rich? I, I'm looking down the street, Jesus, at those people who are worshiping the emperor and I see all those fine clothes and the mansions that they live in I'm not abundantly wealthy in worldly goods. And I don't think he meant that 
Because after all, he did just literally, the word poverty in the Greek, he literally called them beggars. So him calling them rich refers to something else. It refers to their spiritual well-being. They were spiritually wealthy. What a contrast in perspectives. What a contrast between the physical and spiritual conditions of these Christians. In one area of life, they're as poor as Job's turkey, but spiritually, which really is all that matters in the end, spiritually, they were wealthy. They were abounding in wealth. They had need of nothing. You know what the church of Jesus Christ here at Willow Avenue, you know what our Lord wants for us here? For each and every one of you, he wants you to be spiritually rich. In fact, that needs to be the goal of every church of Christ. That needs to be the goal of every Christian because it's all well and good. And I appreciate the brother who mentioned in his prayer thanking God for having a nice place to worship in. It is good to have a nice building. It's, not, it's good to have plenty of money in the collection plate. Those things have their purpose. Those things have their place. But the most important goal of any church no matter how large, no matter how small, is to be spiritually rich. Here you have this church of God's people in Smyrna. Smyrna is the second largest city in Asia Minor at the time. 200,000 population, the center of emperor worship for the surrounding area, which means that that city is the recipient of a lot of favors from the Roman government. And smack dab in the middle of it is this group of Christians who are going through severe hardship, Persecution, they were extremely poverty-stricken because they were being persecuted, because they were Christians. But what were they doing? They were still serving the Lord faithfully. They were still living the Christian life. Even though living that Christian life was causing them to go through even more hardship and undergo extreme sacrifice. Why were they doing it? Well, what, what was their perspective? Who did they set their eyes on? Who was the real source of their hope? It was Jesus. It was Jesus. And that is why, yes, they were poor in material goods, but they were rich in faith. And they were rich in good works. And God wants every Christian in this room to be the same way. And that's why verse 10, he tells them to be faithful unto death. And the result would be that they would receive crown of life. A lot of us see the phrase, be faithful unto death, and we assume that it means be faithful until death. In other words, be faithful for the rest of your life. And it's true that after we obey the gospel, Christ does want us to be faithfully obedient Christians for the rest of our lives. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, what did, what did God tell us? Be faithful, uh, be faithful uh, as long as it's still called today. Which kind of is like saying, as long as there is a day that ends in why, I want you to serve me. Every single day. But that's not what, what be faithful unto death actually means. He had just told them they were about to suffer and be thrown into prison. They're probably going to end up being martyred because they're Christians. Polycarp, one of the very first readers of John's letter here, Revelation, most likely. He would experience that same fate a few decades later. So the, faith, the phrase, be faithful unto death, means be faithful even if it means your death. 
Be faithful even to the point of death, which is what Polycarp did, which is what the apostles who were killed for their faith did. So I ask you and I ask myself, how strong is our allegiance to Jesus, our loyalty to him? If we were about to be thrown into prison, if we were about to have our freedom and our homes and our families and our jobs and our very lives taken away from us simply because we were in this room worshiping God, would we stay strong or would we renounce Christ? It's a sobering question because God wants us to remain faithful no matter what. And if we do that, then verse 10 promises us we will receive the crown of life. Romans 8 verses 14 through 17, basically the point of that passage is that when we become Christians, we become members of the family of Jesus we become members of his church, the house of God, 1 Timothy 3, verse 15. We have become adopted, spiritually speaking. And as God's adopted children, verse 17 of Romans 8 tells us that we have an inheritance waiting for us. We are heirs, and that inheritance is eternal life. Paul knew it. He was about to have his head chopped off by Nero, but what did he tell Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 8? I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. What's waiting for me? You remember? What's waiting for me? That same crown of life that Jesus is promising to these Christians in Smyrna. How strong is our allegiance to Christ. We will all die physically one day. But if we remain faithful unto death, in other words, if we remain faithful even if it means our death, then we will be resurrected just as Jesus was one day. Go back to Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. What did Jesus call himself? The first and the last who died and came to life. The Alpha and the Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. The beginning and the ending, the first and the last. This is Jesus' way of saying, I am from A to Z. I am the beginning and the end, the first and the last. I am complete in every way. And I died, and then I came back to life. And he is the only one who has ever been resurrected from the dead, never to die again. But what did Paul call Christians in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23? He called Jesus the first fruits of those who would be resurrected, never to die again. Which means Jesus was the first to be resurrected and would never die again. But when he comes again, all of us who remained faithful to him no matter what, we also will be resurrected never to die again. We will receive that crown of eternal life. But not only that, look at verse 11 of Revelation 2. The one who overcomes, some translations say the one who conquers, will not be hurt by the second death. What is the second death? Revelation 21 verse 8 says that the second death is hell. That's for the cowardly, and unbelieving, and abominable, and murderers, and immoral persons, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And who will undergo the second death? Who will go to hell? 
Revelation 20, verses 14 and 15. Anyone whose name is not in the book of life, and whose names are written in the book of life, faithful Christians. Luke chapter 10, verse 20, Jesus tells his disciples to rejoice that their names were written in heaven. When you obeyed the gospel, and when you stay faithfully loyal and obedient and penitent when you fall, then your name stays in that book of life. Is your name written there? I want us to think about that. I want us to think about the fact that our names are written in the registry of heaven the next time you're at Sam's Club and you're at the gas station and you're looking at the pain at the pump. When was the last time that happened? When was the last time you were experiencing the pain at the pump and you thought, you know what, it's okay because my name's written in heaven. Because I'm going to heaven. When was the last time any of us did that? How often do we think about heaven? How often do we think that we are going to heaven? I just lost my job. But, and, it's, and I'm stressed and I'm worried. And this is going to put myself and my family in a lot of hardship. But God, I'm asking you to help me here. But God, while I'm asking you to help me, and I'm casting all my cares upon you because you care for me, I want to take just a moment, God, and just thank you for the fact that because of your grace, my name is written in heaven. So that no, even though I've lost my job here, i got something waiting for me in heaven. And I just thank you for that. When was the last time we did that? Christians, God wants you and I to overcome. He wants you and I to be conquerors. And the reason I know this is because he says that he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death, which is hell. We're not going to hell. We're not going to hell. Isn't that great? Isn't it? Is that our perspective? Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth. Do we set our mind on the things above? We walk by faith, not by sight. Are we walking by sight because we are just so focused on everything around us? You know what helped me? I'm just going to this I'm going to give you an opinion. You get a lot of doctrine. I'm giving you one opinion here. You want to know what really helped me with my perspective? I made the decision a few years ago that I was going to stop watching 24-hour, 7-day-a-week news. I made the decision I was going to dedicate exactly 15 minutes Monday through Friday, and that's it, to reading, not watching, reading the news. You can't, you can't really fit a lot into 15 minutes. 15 minutes a day, Monday through Friday. It, oh, it changed my perspective. <laughs> it really did. It helped me to get my mind off the things of the world. It really helped me to start focusing more on the things above. Because, because what I used to do, was, in spite of being a preacher, you know what, I mean, the talk radio was on, and then at night it was the news, 
That's what I focused on all the time. And, and I just got cynical and I got bitter and I got frustrated and everything. And I didn't really think all that much about what Jesus wanted me to think of. Even as a preacher, I didn't. And I decided not to stop doing that. And I decided to take, I'd give it 15 minutes. And then the rest of the time that I was giving it, I would give it to this. And I would give it to my wife. And I would give it to my girls. And I would give it to actually doing personally what this told me to do actively doing it, it's amazing how your perspective changes. It really is. It's called being faithful. Being faithful is far, far, far more than being here on a Sunday night and showing up on Wednesday night and, and coming here an hour earlier for the Bible class before Sunday morning worship. It's far more than that. Because you can do all of those things, and that's four hours a week. Four hours a week, you got so much more time to do things that God would have you not do, and to focus on things that God would rather have you focusing on something else. Being faithful means you change your perspective. Being faithful means that you set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth, that you make a habit of doing it, that it is a daily and nightly thing. The psalmist said that on his law... The righteous man meditates day and night. Does that describe you? The righteous man, his perspective is focused on the spiritual. And there's a reason for that. Because when, when life happens and the bad things happen, and the bad things that happen to you and me, I'm not downplaying them at all. There are things that have happened to people in this room that I am positive are far worse than anything that has ever happened to John Mitchell. But you know what? Did we, have we gone through what Jesus went through for us? Have any of us been crucified? Have any of us, have any of us been thrown into a coliseum full of lions because of our faith? Have any of us been beheaded? Have any of us, have any of us not only lost our jobs but lost our freedom? And been sent to exile like John was when he wrote this. And they still kept the faith. What God wants us is if we get in the mindset of focusing on the things above, having our perspective focused on him, then you know what? When the bad things happen in this life, even if it turns out to be as bad as it was for them, it's more possible and it's even more likely that we will remain faithful, even to the point of death. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's, what, that's how he closed this. This was inspired by the Spirit. So whenever you are hearing a message that is completely from the Bible, or you are reading your Bibles, you are receiving a message from the Holy Spirit, basically. Are we listening to what the Spirit has said to the church at Willow Avenue tonight. Not through any sort of miraculous inspiration that he's given me. No, not at all. Just simply by reading what the Spirit-inspired words of God's Word says. Are we listening to what the Spirit has said to the church at Willow Avenue tonight? Are we, are we focusing on what God would have us focus on? Him. Seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. I thank you for the privilege of speaking to you tonight. I'm a visitor here. So I do not know, but you do. And God does. 
if there are any here within the sound of my voice who are not in Christ and yet are ready and believe with all their heart in the gospel and want to receive the the gift of God's grace and be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of their sins tonight. I hope that there is. Perhaps you are here tonight as a Christian, and maybe what I've said tonight from God's Word has pricked your heart. Maybe you realize that your perspective is not where it needs to be. I, I hope so, because it's pricked my heart. I think it's something that all of us need to be reminded of. The Bible says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you would like to confess publicly, if that is the need that you have, then we give you that opportunity now. But regardless, make sure that you acknowledge to your God whatever you need to change and do so with a penitent heart. And he will forgive you and he will keep on forgiving you as you continue to try to serve him and seek him first. If you have these needs, let it be known, made known now while we stand and sing.